0: 2 Timothy chapter 2. You'll find the uh, notes in the bulletin, outline, if you want to follow along. 2 Timothy 2, verses 20 to 26. This this would be part one of a study of this passage, but I trust the Lord as much for us here. Let's have a word of prayer. Lord God, We just pray that you would give grace now, Lord, give me grace as I speak, give my brothers and sisters grace as they hear, Lord, and we just pray that you would establish your truth, your word, as that which causes, creates reverence for you, that you would guard me from error, that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts to believe, and that we would not look at ourselves in a mirror and walk away and forget what we see, but that we would... Be those faithful men and women who, looking intently into the perfect law of liberty, we'd be effective doers of your word, that you would change us with it and by it and through your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to ask you to think of the last time you saw a professional, an artist, someone skilled in their craft at work, whether it's an athlete a musician, a surgeon, a painter. I I remember about uh, 15 years ago in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, I got the opportunity to go see um, Christopher Parkening, who is a world-renowned classical guitarist. And I'm sure some of you have had the opportunity to, to witness great skill, artistic skill, craftsman skill. And one of the things I've noticed, whether it's an athlete a musician, a doctor, a painter. One thing I've noticed that they all have in common is skilled workers, skilled artists, are very particular about the tools they use, aren't they? See, Christopher Parkening, with his level of skill, is very particular about what classical guitar he's going to play. For someone like me, it's not as important. I become the weakest link in that chain. But um, when you're dealing with a the Olympics, you, you and I both know that the gear and the shoes and the clothing that is chosen when you're competing at that level of artistry, at that level of skill, second class materials won't do. Now I know that the there's an expression, a bad workman blames his tools. Well the reason why good workmen don't blame their tools is they don't pick bad tools. And this morning in our passage, Paul is going to put forward for us this possibility that we we could be tools we could be vessels we could be instruments that the master wields and are useful see god is a master craftsman he is skilled perfectly in everything that he does so the problem is not on his end much like the weakness in my guitar playing is me i, I can't blame the instrument but in god's case he, he doesn't use shoddy instruments now as we go through our study, we're going to see what this is not saying is shape yourself up, you know, dust yourself off. And God's looking for a few good men and women he can use. No, God is looking for people willing to be changed and transformed by him so that he can use them. And this morning, we're going to see four requirements that Paul gives Timothy. He gives us four requirements that are necessary if if you and if I want to be instruments in the redeemer's hands if we want to be found useful if you want god to do something with your life if you want to if you hunger for purpose for consequence in the way you live then pay attention as we look at four requirements to become instruments in the redeemer's hands let's read this passage and then we'll dive in second timothy 2 20 to 26 now in a great house There are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wooden clay. Some for honorable use and some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, and ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, And peace, along with those who call on the name of the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed only quarrels. And the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. Able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may, perhaps, grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil after, having been, after being captured by him to do his will. In these six verses, and we're only, this is part one of a two week study, um, looking through this becoming instruments in the Redeemer's hands. Four requirements that Paul gives Timothy, and he wants him to pass on to the church how, how to become useful for the Master. So let's dive in with our first point first requirement clean your cup clean your cup and we see that in verses 20 to 21 now Paul here enters into an extended metaphor and with every metaphor you got to figure out how the metaphor works um, and if you don't figure out how it works you can, you can misunderstand it but let's take a look at this he says in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver but also of wooden clay some for honorable use some for dishonorable use Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he'll be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. Now, there's been a lot of debate. Not actually that much, but there's basically two schools of thought of of what these these vessels are and what the house is. But I I think it's pretty clear when you compare Paul's other writings. Um, So so to try to understand the metaphor, we've got to start with, okay, what is this large house? That Paul is speaking of. Well, the blank there is the church. Paul commonly refers to the church as God's house or household. Listen to how he says in First Timothy 3:14 to 15, "I'm writing these things," he says, "so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So the church is God's household. So in a large household, there are many types of vessels. So what we're to learn here is Paul's making a metaphor about the church. In the church, he says, there are different vessels, honorable vessels and dishonorable vessels, vessels made of gold and silver and vessels made of wood and clay. What are we to make of this? What, what is being meant? Clearly, there's, there's good vessels and bad vessels, and household vessels are things like bowls, cups, containers. Um, and in a time without indoor plumbing, the dishonorable vessels might be things akin to a bedpan, um, which, which, thankfully, we don't have these days. Um, we have in, amen for indoor plumbing. No, amen. Amen. There we go. Amen. God is good. And... So the debate is centered around, okay, is Paul comparing two types of Christians? There are sort of um, everyday Christians, wood and clay Christians, and then there's really good, useful, vital, excited and energetic Christians, and they're the gold and silver Christians. I, I don't think so. I don't think so for two reasons. In the context in which we're in, if you remember, we started this second section of the letter... The first section, if you remember, of the letter is chapter 1, 3, all the way through two, thirteen, 13, is an extended exhortation to encourage Timothy to persevere, to make it to the end, to not be ashamed, to not be afraid, to be willing to suffer. And then, in verse 14 of chapter 2, a second theme gets picked up when we began to deal with false teaching and false teachers. And you can see at the end of this passage, in verses 24 to 26, we're back there again. We're back at correcting Erring Brothers. Chapter 3 starts off continuing on this. So, so I, I don't think the contrast of good and of honorable and dishonorable vessels is between you know, normal, okay Christians and really vital and vibrant Christians. I, I don't think that's the contrast at all. I, I think he's contrasting the false teachers and those who are corrupted by their false teaching and those who are not. And that's the contrast. I'll give you the, give you the blanks in a second. There's a second reason why I, th- I think that. And that is Paul uses an identical metaphor in Romans 9. And, and it's clear here. It's between not two good things, but believers and unbelievers. Listen to Romans 9, 21 to 23. Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Now here, at least when Paul uses a similar metaphor in Romans, we're not looking between the okay people, the okay Christians and the great Christians. We've got vessels of wrath and vessels of salvation. Now, that doesn't guarantee that's the same way Paul's using it in Timothy, but given the immediate context of Second Timothy and the other use of this metaphor, I'm convinced that vessels for honorable use would then mean faithful men or men and women. Really linking back to 2.2, chapter 2, verse 2, where Paul tells Timothy, what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men. These are men who are going to get, get it right. They're going to cut it straight. You remember from last week? They're going to cut God's word straight. The baton will be passed. It will not be fumbled. They will transmit God's truth onto the next generation. Those are the honorable vessels. The dishonorable vessels? Well, we're going to hear more about them later in this passage, but they're the false teachers. That's the blank there. They're the false teachers. So I think that's the metaphor. So what he's saying then, in effect, is in the church, there will be Those people who are holding fast to God's word, who are getting it right, who are cutting it straight, who are passing it on as they've received it, and there are going to be those who get caught up in controversies and quarrels and disputes and false teaching. And what he says is only one of those two groups is useful to the Lord. Only one of those two groups can the Lord do something with. Which is why he says in verse 21, therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use. Set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house and ready for every good work. Cleansing yourself then in this context would mean separation from false teaching. Words for pure purge. Now I think by implication, the sinful practices that go with false teaching, you're cleansing yourself from them as well error will breed sinful conduct wrong thinking will always express itself eventually in wrong acting orthopraxy is a result of orthodoxy orthodox beliefs produce authentic faithful living the converse is true as well I had had a cup of tea this this week with a false teacher Um, another friend of mine was going to meet with him and I said hey can I tag along and go and this is a, um, a gay pastor of a Mormon church. And um, we had, he was, he was polite, he was um, well-spoken, he was uh, friendly... Uh, it's a mistake if we think that false teachers have curly mustaches, wear top hats, and laugh maniacally. It'd be, really, it'd be easy to spot them then, wouldn't it? It'd be really easy to spot them then. This was a really nice guy. You'd get along with him just fine. I, I, you know, As far as it went, I did as well. I did as well. But what he was arguing and what he was laying out and what he was advocating, if you believed it and embraced it, would, would lead to a lifestyle of sin and lawlessness. Basically basically he was advocating that all God's really interested in is us developing our relationships. And as we press that into what that meant in you know, a sort of sexual ethic, well, as long as there's love and there's respect and there's equality, then really, if the relationship can sustain it, anything goes. And so you can see how quickly um, false teaching can lead to false living. But in the context, cleansing yourself is, is getting rid of removing the false teaching getting away from it we're going to see in the verses that follow don't have anything to do with it avoid it right and so of course by implication the 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 living that accompanies it but it's about distancing yourself from false teaching cleansing yourself then is separation from false teaching and paul makes this wonderful promise that if we can do that, if we can stay pure, if we can hold on to the truth and be careful to avoid error, be careful to avoid um, buying into these things, we will be useful. We will be useful to the master. And, and he does kind of twist the metaphor here because there's no amount of scrubbing that's going to turn a wooden bowl into a gold bowl, right? And, so the, the, and you, you don't want to make metaphors stand up on all four legs. You want to get the main point. The main point is... You can either be useful in God's service or you can not be useful. And whether you are holding fast to the truth or not is what makes the difference. And so Paul is telling Timothy um, that that's why this is important. And those people who are not holding on to the truth, God will not be using them for his good purposes. They will not be useful in that way. I want to be useful to the master. I, I believe you want to be useful to the master. And so the first necessary requirement is clean your cup. And look at the consequences of cleaning your cup, of, of holding fast to the truth. You will be, he says, holy. He says that there in verse 21. If anyone cleanses himself, he'll be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy. And we hear holy And holy is a a Christianese word, isn't it? I mean, we don't use holy in any other context in religion unless I'm talking about my socks. Okay. Um, um, No, but we don't use that word. And so I think it's helpful to understand what holy means. The root concept of holiness is being set apart. When God says he is holy, when the angels cry out, he is holy, holy, holy. we, We serve the thrice holy God. It means he is altogether different from everything else. Which is why so often when the Lord rebukes false gods, he says, to whom will you compare me? And the point he's making is, I'm not like anything else. Right? And so when God is holy, he is set apart, he is different. Now in a moral realm, it means his standards, his perfections, his integrity is in a class all to its own. And then when God turns to us and he says that we are holy, and, and when you see sometimes translated in your Bible, saints, it's those who are holy, those who are set apart, it's the concept that God has called us his own. And as he looks at all of the mass of humanity, he has set apart a peculiar people to love in a special way. And if you are his and he is yours, then you are set apart in that way. Listen to the language of 1 Corinthians 1, 2, as Paul greets the church at Corinth. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified, set apart, holy, pick your adjective, they're all the same thing, they mean the same thing, sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, or called to be sanctified, you get that? In Christ, you are set apart, and God is calling you to be set apart. It's a Pauline theme that shows up regularly, which is basically, be what you are. God has set you apart. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ, you are set apart. God has set you apart. So now, start acting like it. You're set apart, you're sanctified, and you're called to be sanctified, which is why Paul says, you've got to distance yourself from error, You've gotta set yourself apart from false teaching. You gotta turn off Oprah, right? We will be wholly set apart. And I love this imagery of the vessels because when I grew up in my home, my mom had a, a hutch, and the good vessels, the good plates and china were put in it, right? How many of you, you don't need a show of hands, but I'm sure many of you have got good china, special glasses. I know we have the glasses that a crystal cutter friend of mine made for Serena and I for our wedding. We don't use them every day. We don't drink, you know, um, Coca-Cola out of them. They're set apart. They're special. We prize them. You want to be a useful vessel? You can not only be a useful vessel, you can be a set apart vessel. The picture here of, of sort of God's special, useful, valuable tools You can be holy and set apart, and I love this, you can be ready for every good work. And the picture here is this tool, in the master's hand can be used for anything. You guys, you ever watch Star Trek, the old Star Trek? You notice how that little calm thing can be used for anything? They can pretty much scan, heal, talk. It's basically sort of the uh, universal app for everything. If you set yourself apart, if you cleanse yourself, God can use you for any task, for every task good work, you can become that universal tool that he can use, not just for one task, not just for two tasks, but for every good work. And some of you, that phrase, every good work might be echoing, turn over to chapter 3. Paul, that phrase gets picked up again. In a very, very familiar passage, chapter 3, 16 and 17, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. For teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. God wants to use us to accomplish his good works. And notice again, what, what's required for you, for you to be equipped for every good work? You've got to be holding fast to this. See, he says it positively in chapter 3. You've got you to be using this. You've got to be looking to this. If you want to be ready for every good work. Uh, negatively, you've got to cleanse yourself from what isn't this, from what contradicts this, from what would add to this. You can be useful to the master for every good work. You see how that works? Positively and negatively. First negatively here, and then positively at the end of chapter 3. It's, it's what we do with this that determines our usefulness to the Lord. Because he doesn't use inappropriate tools. He will cleanse his people. He will sanctify us. He has set us apart. And he will continue to set us apart. So first requirement to being an instrument in the Redeemer's hands, you've got to clean your cup. And practically what that means, you've got to be careful. You've got to examine what you're hearing. You've got to examine what I'm saying. You've got to make sure that I'm cutting it straight. You've got to make sure the books you're reading, the sermons you're listening to, are cutting it straight. You see, one of the implications of the doctrine that we are all priests to God, as 1 Peter says, we are a nation of priests, is that we, we don't have anyone else intermediating between the Lord Jesus and ourselves. When we talk about having a personal relationship with Jesus, what we're making a distinction from is it's not that I know this guy who knows Jesus. And I talk to this guy who will talk to Jesus for me. I, I, I talk to Jesus. I talk to God through Jesus. Jesus is my high priest. No man is my priest. But that also then means I can't just take anyone's word for what this means. I, I can't stand before God and say, well, you know, um, Zeb told me, Daniel told me, or even Joel told me. Because I, I, I don't have a priest, I am one, you are one. In, in God's kingdom, God expects me to cut this straight. God expects you to cut this straight. And I can help you, and I can try to teach and, and, and pray that the Lord will help me do that faithfully. But at the end of the day, you have a responsibility to keep your cup clean, and you keep your cup clean by examining truth and avoiding error. That's how you clean your cup. Secondly, you want to be a useful instrument in the Redeemer's hands. The second requirement. Is you've got to put off and put on. You've got to put off and put on. Now, the reason I highlight that is whenever you see in scripture, don't do this, do this, what we get is the clear implication that these are at odds, that you can't do both, that the one will prevent the other. Much like you've heard the saying, you know, this book will keep you from sin, or sin will keep you from this book, it's the same relationship here. And so I want us to see that, because Paul says to Timothy negatively, put off, flee youthful passions, pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. So you've got to put off, you've got to put on. And Timothy, we know, is a younger man, certainly younger than Paul, and he tells him to flee <laughs> Youthful passions. Now, the verb there is, is, is an active, ongoing verb. It's, it's continually be, be fleeing from youthful passions. And again, we've got to ask okay, what's he mean by that? Well, I think again, the context gives us some Im- indication. Um, it, it sure seems like by the time we get to verse 24, it's about not being a jerk, not being angry, not being quarrelsome. And certainly, I think youth and youthfulness. Can be given to wrath, can be given to anger. I, I think that's part of it. There's also really only one other time that Paul says to flee something. You think about that. You go, to, you go to Ephesians 6, and you put on the armor of God, and you stand and you fight, right? And you stand. And here Paul says, flee. There's one other place I know where Paul says flee. It's 1 Corinthians 6, where Paul says, flee sexual immorality. 1 Corinthians six eight six eighteen. You know, Paul will say, Stand and fight. This host of sins, sexual immorality, run the other way. You think of Joseph who who just bolted when Potiphar's wife was trying to seduce him. You flee. And, and, and as I think about younger men and, and what they struggle with, yeah, that seems about that sounds about right. And so you've got to flee that. The implication is it, you know, embracing your adolescence, embracing the boy culture, embracing the passions of youth will keep you from being righteous, will keep you from growing in your faith. It'll keep you from being loving and peaceable. Because you've got to put off and you've got to put on. Well, and the good news is if you're here and you're struggling with those things, Paul gives you something to do. Because sometimes it's not enough simply to run from something, because if you don't have somewhere to run to, you sort of get in trouble. It's like if I tell you, okay, whatever you do, don't think of purple elephants. What are you all thinking of right now? Purple elephants. And, and so, if all you're doing is, okay, don't get angry, don't, don't have lustful thoughts, or, or whatever else you want to group into youthful lust, you're going to be thinking about it a lot. Well, Paul gives Timothy something to do instead, something to put on, something to pursue, literally, be chasing. I love that imagery. Like a car chase, be chasing, be in pursuit of, and he gives a list, righteousness, faith, or it could be translated faithfulness, love, and peace. You know, Paul, Paul gave a similar exhortation back in First Timothy. I believe, Pastor Joel, it's the passage you preached when you were in First Timothy. You served us well there for Timothy 6:11. But as for you, O oh man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness and gentleness, a very similar list. And if all you're doing is struggling with sin and you're not focusing on what you should be doing instead, that might explain why your struggle is as big as it is. God wants us to take some things off to run from something and to run to something. That's the pattern for growth. You want to be useful. You want to be an instrument in the Redeemer's hands. You've got to clean your cup, but you've got to put off and put on. One other observation here before we move on to our next point, and that is sanctification, becoming more holy, more like Jesus Christ, is a group project. It's a group project. Because even though there's no man other than the Lord Jesus who stands between me and God, because even though there's nobody on earth, who, who is a mediator between me and Jesus. I have my own personal relationship with him. Sometimes we hear that phrase so often, we think just me and Jesus walking off into the sunset. But notice the end of this verse. Flee youthful passions, pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along or together with those who call upon the Lord from a pure heart. This is something i got to do with other people. Something you have to do with other people. This is one of the reasons why we have small groups and why we have Bible studies and why fellowship and Christian friendship is so important. Another reason maybe why if if you find yourself stuck in here, if you aren't really pursuing, if you're not on the hunt, if you're not chasing after righteousness, faith, love, and peace, maybe you need to form a hunting party. Maybe you need to form a posse to go out and chase after it, to pursue it. Maybe you need to get in a small group Maybe you need to get together and have breakfast. I know there are Christians here. I know there are brothers and sisters. Get together on week mornings and they have breakfast together. And and they're spurring each other on, iron sharpening iron. If you expect to become holy all by yourself, just you and Jesus, it ain't going to happen. God will not bless your improvisation from what he has said. God tells us what he wants us to do, but he also tells us how he wants us to do it. And we presume upon him if we expect him to bless innovative methods. No, pursue those things along with those who call upon the name of the Lord, which just means other Christians. And this theme shows up regularly in Scripture. Hebrews 10, again, another familiar passage. Listen to this, though. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Here's, here's some homework for you this week. Spend some time thinking, what can I do to encourage, and, and think of somebody, you know, just not just some big, vague, sort of general Christians. Pick a couple. What can I do this week to spur them on to love and good works? Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. You see, we get together to encourage each other. We get together to spur each other on. Sanctification is a group project. Third, third requirement: if you want to be an instrument in Redeemer's hands, first you got to clean your cup. Second, you got to be putting off and putting on. Third, choose your conversations with discernment. Choose your conversations with discernment. Verse twenty-three: Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed corals. It seems pretty clear, I hope by now, it's not that God wants us to have a little to do, just a little bit. You know, we've got we to be aware of what's going on. Have nothing to do with it. If you can, avoid it. As, as a pastor, there are times, um, and there are times perhaps where you will need to have something to do with these things. If you know somebody who's caught up in error, then there are times when, okay, if, if I'm trying to meet with someone who's all been caught up in some type of strange thinking, I might have to do a little investigation into that in order to help free them. And if, and if God puts someone in my path where it's clear that to love them and to serve them, I'm going to have to read up on whatever the weird thing is. Or if I've got to sit down and meet with the gay, this, this is how he identified himself, I'm the gay Mormon pastor. That was his, I'm, I don't say that as a derogatory term. That was his self-designation. Um, I don't normally have tea, tea with you know false teachers, but here is a friend of mine, and I thought you know I just want to be there. He's going to and, and just sort of observe and, and, and maybe say something to try to love and serve my brother. And I trust that those contexts God will give grace. But in general, I'm not looking to have tea with you know um, heretics. It's not generally something I try to do. We're supposed to have nothing to do with it. We've got to choose our conversations with discernment. And that's important because we live in a culture that thinks conversation is everything. We need dialogue, right? What we need is more dialogue. We need dialogue with different faiths. We need a conversation. And again, I will remind you that the world was cursed and damned because of a conversation in a garden. that started with a simple question. Did God really say. Don't underestimate the power of conversation. It would have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. Some conversations simply aren't worth having. First Timothy 4, 7. Having have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. Notice that put off, put on. If you're If you're reading all the blogs and if you're online arguing and you're just caught up in the the newest silly, because there'll always be a new silly myth that you can take on. There'll always be one. It's really going to hinder you as you pursue godliness. That's, that's the clear implication. And so the best course of action is unless loving other people, unless the people God puts in your path it requires you to get involved in it, avoid it. Have nothing to do with it. Some conversations simply are not worth having. Secondly, if you're wondering, okay, well, what qualifies as this? How do, how do I know when I'm dealing with these types of things? How do I know if I'm dealing with um, foolish controversies? So by the way, the word for f- Foolish is moros. We get the word moron from it. Stupid, ignorant, uninformed. How do, how do I know if I'm dealing with that? Well, Paul tells you how. You can always identify wisdom by its fruit. He says, you know they breed quarrels. So a real simple rule of thumb is where you see quarreling and bickering, that just might be some of this type of foolish controversies. Wisdom is vindicated by its fruit. Jesus said it this way in Luke 7.35. Wisdom is justified by all her children. T- turn with me to James chapter 3. Turn to James chapter 3. I, I think I've said this before, but I'll say it again because I think it's worth saying. James, as he helps us identify God's wisdom and what he will eventually call demonic wisdom, doesn't tell us to look at the content. Now, Paul will. Paul will come along, and he'll say, look, if anyone's got a different gospel than the one I gave you, anathema. And John will come along in 1 John. Hey, if someone denies that Jesus came in the flesh, he's of the antichrist. There are clearly doctrinal tests in the New Testament. James just doesn't give us one of those. That's not what James is concerned about. So I don't want you to think the content is unimportant, but in James 3, as he helps us identify God's wisdom, the wisdom from above and the wisdom from below, doesn't touch content. He doesn't touch content. He's thinking along the same lines that Paul is in this passage. I want you to see this. Chapter 3, verse 13. Similar context, by the way. People within the church claiming to have wisdom. People in the church, potentially false teaching going on. And he says, okay, verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts do not boast and be false to the truth this is not the wisdom that comes down from above this is earthly unspiritual demonic for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. What James is saying is, let's just take it to me, because by virtue of standing up here, I'm teaching. I think I have something I hope will be of benefit. Okay, Jeremy, you you think you've got some understanding? Let's see your life. What that means is that it doesn't matter if i'm quoting the greek doesn't matter if i'm quoting our doctrinal statement it doesn't matter if i'm quoting the bible if i'm being a jerk about it if i am exercising jealousy and selfish ambition i'm wrong and i'm not walking in the spirit and i'm not operating in god's wisdom you can be dead right you can be right and walking in darkness as james just says look If you're being a jerk, that's not God's wisdom that he gave you. Here's how you identify God's wisdom. It's pure. It's peaceable. It's gentle. It's open to reason, full of mercy, good fruits, impartial, sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And so if you turn back now to 2 Timothy, wisdom is identifiable by its fruit. So if you're not sure, hey, is is this a discussion I should be getting into? Just look at the people involved in the discussion. Are they exercising the fruit of the Spirit and patience and kindness? Are they people hearing and being heard? Are they listening? Hey, that might be good. That might be worth getting involved in. You see people cutting each other off, getting hurt. just stay away. Whatever's going on there is not the wisdom from above. You can just be sure of that. You can just be sure of that. Paul says, you know they just breed Corals. So if you're having a hard time, what are are these foolish, ignorant controversies? Just remember they breed quarrels. And finally, we're just going to scratch the surface here in this last point because quite honestly, next week's message will be solely devoted to further unpacking of verse 24 to 26. I, I think what is in verse 24 to verse 26 is profound. And there's some profound truth. We'll, we'll, we'll scratch the surface this week in our remaining minutes. Um, we have saw the first requirement, you've got to clean your cup. Second, you've got to put off and put on. Third, you've got to choose your conversations with discernment. Fourth, you've got to patiently give correction in hope. Patiently give correction in hope. He just finishes verse 23. You know these controversies breed quarrels. Verse 24. And the Lord's servant, the Lord's slave, better yet, must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil after Being captured by him to do his will. I just just want to make three points for now. We're going to come back to this passage. We're going to look at it word by word, phrase by phrase. Look at all. There's so much here. Three observations, and we will be done. First, this means that we will need to correct in the pursuit of peace and love. That's that's significant because so often we're afraid of correcting in the name of peace and love. We're going to be loving want to be peaceable. But but Paul has just told him, the Lord's bondservant, he's, he's not a quarrel maker. He's not a jerk. But he corrects. You see that? You see it right there? The Lord's bondservant, the Lord's slave. I keep saying bondservant because I memorized this in the New American Standard. So those of you in the New American Standard are sympathizing with me. Um, I memorized this passage about 10 years ago in the NAS. And so I keep come, phrasing it their way. The Lord's slave must not be quarrelsome. So whatever follows isn't quarrelsome, definitionally, isn't quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. You know, back in First Timothy, turn back to First Timothy real fast, we saw that same strange relationship sometimes in the pursuit of love and peace the very thing we'll need to do to promote love and peace is correct and we may be tempted to think that they're mutually exclusive either we're loving and peaceful or we're correcting but but look at first timothy chapter one verse three back about a year ago when we looked at this i think the message was called love and doctrine Look what Paul says. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Now, imagine what that's going to look like. There's a number of people in the church teaching things they shouldn't be teaching, and one man, empowered by the Apostle Paul, is here to put a stop to it. Do you think that was, do you think in the moment, if you just had a video of Timothy fulfilling this, he would look necessarily peaceable? Loving, kind, do you think the people he spoke to felt loved? But then Paul goes on to say, this is amazing, verse 3, I urged you, I was going to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus so that you can charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculation rather than stewardship from God that is by faith. Verse 5, the aim of our charge is love. And we spent pretty much that entire time that Sunday morning saying, "How does that work, Paul?" How, how, how do you have Timothy stay there to shut down these teachers and close down these Bible studies and, you know, and turn the mic off on some of these guys in the name of love?" And it's because ultimately that is the loving thing to do. That is the loving thing for the church, that is the loving thing for them. Sometimes. In the name of peace and love, we give correction. Secondly, second thing, we must do this, I want you to notice this, in the right manner and with the right heart. Just because we sometimes are gonna have to do this in the name of love and peace does not mean every time we do it, we're doing it in the name of love and peace. And it doesn't mean every time we do it, we're doing it in a loving and peaceful way. In fact, all the qualifications in this passage on how the Lord's slave is to go about doing this, the Lord's slave must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. You see, that, that's, what, that's what Paul, that's what God is, is calling Timothy to do. Timothy is a success, Timothy has fulfilled his stewardship to the degree that he can say he's done those things. Now, we'll look at this next week. Notice, he's not a success by whether or not the people listen to him. I love that. I love that. He's a success. He's faithful. He's obedient. He's acting in love and gentleness, not by whether or not the people he's talking to feel loved, but by whether in God's sight he was. And this, is, this is similar to Matthew 7, 3 to 5 of getting the log out of your eye. And people know that, you know, get the log out of your eye. But Jesus does go on to say, once the log is out of your eye, then you'll be able to help your brother with the speck. Correction is not wrong. Correction in the wrong attitude, hypocritical correction is. Third, and we are done. We act in the hope that God will grant repentance. In what attitude do we do this? Do we do this fatalistically? There's no way he's going to listen to me. There's no way she's going to listen to me. I know them. They're not going to listen. This is pointless. Oh, really? You know whether the living God will or won't grant repentance? See, it doesn't depend on how wise my speech is. It doesn't depend on how compelling, how heartfelt my pleadings. I need to be kind. I need to be gentle. I need to be patient. Woe is me if I am not. But the person's response to me does not depend on that. And it doesn't even depend on them. Who, who does the text say is responsible for whether that person's going to listen to you? That person's going to listen to me? It's God. God says, Jeremy. God says, Joel. God says, to every one of you here, you get about the business of being gentle, of being kind, of being able to teach, of being willing to be wronged. And I'm going to deal with whether or not they listen to you. It takes a tremendous load off my shoulders. And I I hope it takes a tremendous load off yours, but it also removes from us the excuse of, if I don't think someone's going to listen to me, then I don't have to go talk to them. That's not my responsibility. It's not my concern. God says he's on top of that. So we act in hope. There's always hope while people are still alive. And sometimes that can be really hard. I remember I had to talk to a family member about a decade ago, pleading with them to reconsider a choice they were making. And I'd talked to them once or twice before, and they did not want to hear it. And one of the hardest things for me, I knew I had to go talk to them, was to go and hope. Was I really willing to believe the God of the universe could soften their heart? Was I really willing to believe the God of the universe could pour out grace in that moment? And even though in our previous two or three conversations, he had not, was I really willing to believe he was able to, or were I going just to fulfill a responsibility, just so my conscience would feel better? Okay, I I talked to this family member. And in, in ultimately, they did not, 10 years ago, listen to me. But by God's grace, I believe I was able to go in hope. God, you know, God, you can do this. You can, you can change hearts. You changed my heart. You can change theirs. And so we've got to go in hope. So there are our four requirements. Now, we've just touched on the last one. And really, next week, we're just going to dive into this. And what does that mean? And when, when do we do this? And what does that look like? And and so, so I'd encourage you to be thinking about that. But just to, 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 to reiterate, to sum up, we've got to clean the cup. We've got to make sure we're holding firm to the word and, and not getting contaminated by false teaching. And we've got to be p- putting off some things and putting on some things. We've got to be fleeing some things and chasing after some things. And we've got to be choosing our conversations with discernment. And have got to be willing to patiently give correction in hope. If we can do that, If we are eager to do that, if we're willing to do that, you will be useful to God. You will be that tool that can get any job done in his hand, useful to the master, ready for every good work. Let's pray. Dear God, I just thank you for your word. I thank you for your goodness. I thank you for your faithfulness. Lord, I I believe that, that we want to be faithful to you. And we want to be useful in your hand, Lord. Not that we can get anything done on our own. Not that in our own strength we can accomplish anything. But, oh, Lord God, if you would use us, if you would wield us as your tool, as your vessel, as your instrument, Lord, you can accomplish so much. So, Lord, help us to desire that and help us to embrace what your word says we are to do to become those useful vessels be your purposes, instruments in your hand. In Jesus' name, amen. You are dismissed. Coffee and donuts are downstairs.